listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to performance artist Danny Plogia. I asked his body piercer to take part of that copper wire and to construct a coil on my abdomen. And then for the duration of this exhibition, every three seconds, for one second, an electric current would run through this coil on my abdomen and thus create a very faint magnetic field. Danny shared his insights on electronic waste, planned obsolescence in digital technology, and the post-human in performance. This episode was recorded on location at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London, England, where Danny is a research fellow. So I first came in contact with you, Danny, when you were organising this event called Reperforming the Post-Human. I mean, where did the interest in, in this subject, the post-human, come from? It came from my own art practice. I'd been making work for a while then where everyday electronics, consumer electronics, also some simple medical uh, devices are connected to the body. And I was making work with that. And what this conference, the idea for this event, uh, what that came from was, I think, a little bit of a concern or an annoyment I had with a lot of the writing and talking around bodies extended with technologies that went into the in the direction of what I would call classic transhumanism, the idea of enhancing the body with the latest new technological devices so it becomes uh, more durable, can do incredible things, but all a bit in the realm of, of sci-fi fantasy. And what I was interested in by put, attaching these everyday technologies to the body was maybe a much more mundane idea of the body coming together with a technology, an idea of the cyborg that is not Robocop, but that's just, you know, the person with the pacemaker, that sort of thing. So this idea of re-performing the post-human was pretty much based on a desire to talk about the cyborg 10 years after or 15 years, 20 years after the Cyborg Manifesto and and, uh, Catherine Hale's book became famous. And to really, yeah, to talk about maybe the the normal (laughs) cyborg, (laughs) the normal technologized body, the, you know, technology in the everyday and its implications for the way we perceive and experience our bodies. So how did the interest in the cyborg first come about? I mean, all of your work has has dealt in some way with the collision of the body and technology. I think it's not in the first instance an interest in the cyborg. It's more an interest in the way people, I, you, live in the everyday and the extent to which technological devices play a very big role in this, both in terms of that we use them and and they're just there, but particularly also in the way we imagine our bodies, we imagine the future, we have all sorts of ideas about the world that are shaped by the promises of technology. So it comes from that, from when I look at my, my everyday, what I do, what the kind of key devices are there, particularly when in terms of dreams of progress, the future, uh, connectivity, I would say a lot of these electronic devices, consumer technologies are, are central there. Also, you know, growing up through the, through the 80s and the 90s, this was like particularly the 80s, right? That's the kind of this time where the digital is really featured as, oh my God, this is, this is a new thing. Everything's going to be digital. It's going to be great. So it comes from that. And then, so then work, doing work around the body and um, 
these technological devices, when you start thinking about that, you very quickly go to, you know, people who think and write about the cyborg or the technologized body. You said that your work uh, specifically subverts spectacles of sex, violence and waste in a techno-consumer culture. Could, could you just explain what you mean by that? Well, I think, yes, um, I can explain that. First, like techno-consumer culture, what I mean by that is consumer culture. So a culture that very much evolves around the obtaining of commodities to build, shape identity. So that's consumer society for me, or consumerism. Techno-consumerism is a subset of that, or maybe a stage in that view of society that very much evolves around technological commodities, taking a primary role in that. So that's that's that part. So most of my work then, yeah, there is a sense of, of for me, playing with with the spectacle, with with the extreme, right? I made a piece where I'm where I'm controlling a, a sound and image with with my sphincter muscle. <clears throat> I I did a work where I fired an AK-47 at uh, an iPad. Uh, I made a smartphone app that is uh, porn and art at the same time. I um, what I mean by by this uh, by the spectacles of uh, sex, waste, and violence is that I like in the work to go to these extreme, um, these extreme positions. So they also start to take a place in this field of, of consumer uh, culture, where they are perceived as this kind of spectacle in the Debordian sense, right? Something that Vice might or what Vice has written about. So it does that. It it creates this spectacle. But then the spectacles are always a bit subversive. There's something that's not quite right about them. Yeah, you know, there's a whole genre of guys, particularly in the States, who fire weapons at consumer technology. That's a common thing. There's like millions of videos on, on, on the YouTube. You can watch that. So I did that as well. So I'm doing the spectacle. But in a way, I, I tried to subvert it by now making a highly aestheticized piece. So I fire at the iPad like all the other lads. But I then do it with a high frame rate camera and play the recording of the breaking screen of the iPad. They shot on a working iPad, etc., etc. Do you know why the guys in the US are doing that? Why they're shooting these pieces of consumer tech? Is, is it comes from a boredom thing or is there something more interesting uh, I, Well, I mean, I don't know why they're doing it. I have some ideas of why they might do it. Like one key thing for me is uh, something that relates very much to Baumann's uh, idea of liquid modernity, right? Where he talks not about modernity and post-modernity, but about solid modernity and liquid modernity. Whereas in solid modernity, um, the positions and roles of people and also artifacts in society in terms of their meanings and the power relations are, are clear. In liquid modernity, there is a sense of fluidity there. So that also then comes to uh, positions of power in society, masculinity, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if we look at, at Skyfall, at the uh, James Bond film, that's for me kind of a key, key thing here. That kind of, uh, for me, is an explanation of the issue with the shooting uh, the, the iPads and all this stuff as well, right? There's a very interesting thing about that film. If you think about the whole Bond um, uh, series, James Bond is always about the same age. He's like in his 40s, he's kind of stud and la, la, la. Suddenly... In 2012, I think it came out, Skyfall, there is this, this problem. James Bond is getting old, right? They're talking about, oh, maybe he should retire or whatever. And the key issue 
the indicator of him getting old is that he doesn't come to terms with these contemporary technologies, right? And then you've got Da Silva, who's who's both gay and a computer hacker. So it's like two things that are kind of, you know, very awkward for James Bond. So so the whole issue here is that the classic masculinity of James James Bond is challenged by the fact that now warfare and crime are done with a computer. They don't involve these guns and muscle power and whatever anymore. Now, the satisfaction of the film is that in the end, using like uh, machine guns and a whole old repertoire, he then finally is victorious over this new kind of criminal. So in the end of the film, we kind of get the old model of masculine armed violence back that's victorious. Now, if you now think about these these guys who shoot all these consumer technologies, what's in it for me is that this consumer technology, in a way, is also is an object of anxiety with that's concerned, whereas the, whereas the AK-47 or the M-16 or whatever gun you take is, is related to this classic idea of, you know, uh, uh, violence masculinity. So so shooting the iPad is, you know, surely there's an aspect of fun and boredom and God knows what. I mean, there's great examples of these desolate environments where they're, where they're shooting a uh, thing. But I think this other issue also plays a role there. There is a problem, right? There's a problem in, uh, in these technologies in the realm of violence and warfare, which is another area of, of interest of mine now. Uh, these technologies and the ideas of technologies pushing out the classic idea of of the, of the strong soldier down in the field who fires guns and, and has a, a body that is uh, superior in terms of strength over other people in society. How did that idea come about? Was it purely that, that bond interest? or Because I know you went off and trained to learn how to fire an AK-47 and there was a whole process that, that made this piece Possible? No, with the the Bond thing is a kind of side reference, right? I'm not a James Bond fan. I mean, I just happened to go to that film. I mean, of course, I've also seen others, as, as most people have who grew up in Western Europe. Uh, but but um, no, I think the the this interest goes further back. I mean, what I did grow up with is the A-Team, right? That sort of thing. And and, and this is American series tour of duty about the Vietnam War, all this stuff. There is a gun culture in Europe. Maybe not in terms of everybody owning guns. Some countries more than others um, grew up in the Netherlands. That's not the thing. But there is a gun culture in terms that there is a really strong uh, symbolic uh, realm of the gun, there is a lot of imagination around the gun, and it's very closely tied also to to masculinity. Whatever playing with guns, but but what the interest in in this came from this this juxtaposition of these consumer technologies and these kind of crude, violent weapons, that comes from something that I started to notice in recent years in various places in Europe. The first trigger for this piece where I fired the AK-47 at the iPad was a trip that I made from Kiev on the train towards Donetsk, but the train doesn't go to Donetsk, towards the last station before the front line. So about 20 kilometers away from from where the rockets impact from the Donetsk People Republic, the separatist area, the, the last train stop is there now. So I went there because I this was just my in the summer and I thought it would be interesting to go to the end of Europe. So there I went to the end of Europe. What, what really 
fascinated and shocked me about that trip is that on the one hand, this train was the most advanced thing I've seen in the Ukraine, right? It's air conditioned, there's Wi-Fi on board all the way, there is uh, flat screen TVs that show you all sorts of little TV programs, particularly promoting the Ukraine, whatever. And then there's all these soldiers on the train as well. They're playing on their iPads, on their phones, enjoying the Wi-Fi and whatever. And then you get off at this last station. Towards the end, there are more and more soldiers and fewer civilians because it's also the army base there. So they all get off. You get off. Suddenly it's 40 degrees. It's dusty. It's warm. And there are all these guys standing there walking around in different kinds of uniforms, some of them with sneakers. There are uh, civilian cars sprayed over in camouflage paint, which are now used to, to fight a war with. People are carrying uh, Soviet-era weapons around. So in other words... There is a total clash there. On the one hand, we have a high-tech consumer culture in which also these soldiers take part. On the other hand, they're fighting a war that uses military technologies that go back to the mid-20th century. Now, I thought, oh, that's what's going on here. This is a big uh, uh, question or issue, which I don't really understand. So this idea of firing the iPad, the IK-47 at the iPad, is a kind of uh, colliding these two ramps. But then, a little bit later, I was in Paris looking for my free bicycle with this app. You know, you can get these free bicycles, and then on the app, you can with GPS, you can see where the bikes are free, so you walk there. When you're doing that, you actually run into soldiers in full battle dress with helmets on their belts, with uh, automatic rifles and everything. So this this kind of weird clash, we see it there as well. And, and since the 1990s, I would argue, in Western Europe, this was not there, right? After the troubles more or less ended, after the, the RAF issues in, in, the, uh, in Germany um, stopped in the 70s, 80s. From 1990, there was this idea of warfare. The warfare we have now is high-tech. We've got these smart bombs and drones and all this kind of thing. And these ground soldiers, they're kind of leaving our imagination closely. So we've got this, this continuum between these consumer technologies with GPS, military technology in it as well, and an idea of warfare that's high-tech. Now, since the past like five years or so, we, we get this idea back of, a, of some kind of weird uh, break. On the one hand, we've got these technologies. On the other hand, we've got an, a kind of state of uh, emergency or a kind of warfare condition where these, this technolo- technologized idea of living and also of the technologized body might s- seem somewhere else. So that's, I mean, it's a kind of a long story, but this is really the, for me... The, the source of interest to make a piece like like the assault where I fired a gun at the iPad. How we perceive violence today is always through these little shiny glowing rectangles. Everything that's happening out in the world is, is immediately received through Twitter or Facebook or social media directly to this device. I mean, it does have a violent effect on us. So that every time I hear now the, the CNN or the BBC news breaking news alert on my phone, I have this feeling of dread. And I just wonder if this, when I first saw that piece, when I first saw Assault, I assumed it was some sort of violent reaction against technology. It sounds more like it's about revealing something about how technology helps us perceive and receive violence. Yes. I mean, I think it's not a, it's not a piece against technology, right? And also I think it would, it would not work like that. I mean, what the, okay, somebody fires an AK-47 at an iPad and then shows that, that, 
as a piece against the iPad, well, it isn't really. It also glorifies the device, right? Because the same way you, you mentioned <laughs> YouTube, in the same way as we have uh, uh, those YouTube channels such as Will It Blend, there's a weird fascination with seeing the destruction of iPhones. Or very, is it something to do with the expense of these technologies as well? Oh, I, mean, I think there's, there's that as well. But to go back to your what you mentioned just before, that you have a kind of anxiety when, when there's these news alerts coming up. I'm not quite sure if this is about the way these events are represented or about the immediacy of the information, right? I think I th for me, it's, it's, it's more that. I'm not sure if the way violence is represented through these media now makes it more gruesome than before. I would even argue, if you look at some newspapers in Egypt, they always have the pictures, they show everything, right? I don't see that stuff on my phone generally. So I'm not, I don't really see the, the issue there, but I do see... <laughs> A thing, again, I see, I see a kind of development between this era that I locate from the first Gulf War, 1990-1991, until 2013 or 14, where on the one hand, 1990-1991, that was the time where the smart bomb was was suddenly well not suddenly but it was there introduced and really really promoted and pushed and in that whole era we see this whole thing and we got this stealth uh, plane that was invisible on the radar then we got the the patriot rock, rock, uh, rockets uh, the drones all this stuff this has all been been promoted also pushing these images of, of drone views from above into the media and everything and um, while at the same time, digital technologies became everyday devices. That's something that starts in the 90s. Before they were there, these home computers, but that was a hobby. That was a specific activity of it. From the 1990s, we start to move towards what Mark Weiser called silent computing, right? Where everybody would have a computer, where it becomes complex. So that's kind of a logical thing for me. On the one hand, you know, these, these ideas of the military and warfare, they connect to these devices being everyday. But now we see, in my opinion, a slight disconnect where I use the GPS, which was developed in the first Gulf War, to locate my bike in, in Paris. But I run into soldiers who, who actually don't really fit into this idea of, of this, you know, everything's now high tech, warfare every day. And, uh, so that's, that's something that's interesting for me. We almost forget the, with consumer technology, we almost forget the connection with military research or military kind of hardware. It was so funny that the, the Xbox Connect is the only thing that really came from the, uh, the war on terror because they were doing these, these massive scanning, LIDAR scannings on the tops of uh, tanks for years and they had to find a way to miniaturize it. And yeah. what we get on the back end is a, is a very odd gaming device from Microsoft. Yeah, but, and what interests me there is how in subtle ways then, once these technologies that originally come from the realm of warfare are everyday devices, that our relationship to these warfare technologies changes as well, right? Once you have, and we already have this, right? We've got a totally, uh, we've got a drone perspective on our everyday surroundings, I would say, like using that, that, that Google map all the time. This also changes the way we look at the idea of, uh, of, of drone warfare and things like that. And not necessarily that now suddenly we're, we're, we're totally willing to accept it, right? The interesting thing is that that drone warfare is totally now out of grace and out of fashion. If you look and just, you know, 
a random search on YouTube, things about drones, like three quarters of them are, are videos that, that try to argue how, how, you know, how awful and, and not fulfilling the promises these technologies are. But there is a strong relationship between, in my opinion, between all these technologies that come from the realm of the military and that now are everyday things that we don't really think about anymore. Now, some of your more recent work is dealing specifically what happens to those everyday things when we get rid of them. Now, your new fascination or most recent fascination has been with this thing called electronic waste. Where did the interest in electronic waste suddenly appear? Well, I mean, this, none of these things appear suddenly, uh, for me at least. They're all related to me, right? These devices are now everyday objects for most people and they're largely taken for granted but they have all sorts of aspects that are outside this kind of i would say standard imaginary of the device as something that that represents future and progress something that also alludes to a non-material realm of you know uh, the clouds and also social networks they are imagined as being not material these things are for me all related so so this another aspect of this device is its connection with the realm of the material. As I just uh, suggested, there is a lot of talking and representation around electronic devices of the everyday that seems to push the user towards an understanding of the device as connected to the realm of the immaterial. And the cloud is the best example, right? The cloud is not a cloud. The cloud is a big space full of servers that create a lot of heat and are running and that need to be replaced every two years or maybe four if you're lucky. In a nutshell, electronic waste, the idea was, okay, I'm dealing with these devices. I'm looking at what they mean to people and what's below the surface. But actually, none of my work really actually looks at what happens to these devices after or also, for that matter, before they enter this Western consumer culture. So I started to look, I started to basically follow the devices to those places where they go afterwards, the dumps in Nigeria or before the dumps, new users in other places. So you've recently been awarded an AHRC fund to specifically go and find where these technologies end up. Yes, we did two projects. The first installment was... Um, was a set of workshops. We went to Nigeria, uh, to Lagos, where in the outskirts we looked for places where electronic waste is disposed of and processed. And we also went to Hong Kong, where we did the same. We went to a factory that does recycling. And in the UK, we looked for, um, uh, or where we went to a factory that does recycling here. And this was with a group of artists, uh, cultural theorists, and also scientists, but also from these different countries. So there were a few people from Nigeria and also a few people from Hong Kong on the team. That was one thing. The thing we did now recently in January moves a bit away from this, but looks at the same topic. The idea of the previous thing was people in Europe and North America use computers for a while. Then in many cases, they are shipped off to sub-Saharan Africa and also to the to East Asia, where they're used again for a while, and then they're disposed of waste. Now, what I started noticing when I was in Nigeria, uh, one of the first trips already, that there is a lot of new electronics coming in there, more and more. And the second-hand electronics from Europe they're starting to play a smaller, smaller role. So what the new project now looks at is the proliferation since the last few years of brand new 
consumer technologies, but those at the very bottom of the market who are very, very cheap. The thing that triggered this was I, I lost my phone in Nigeria, got robbed, wanted to buy a new one. And I wanted just a basic Nokia phone. Went to this shop on the street corner and, I, and they had some second, oh no, they had some new ones and said, oh yeah, they're about five pounds or something, really cheap, new Nokia. And then I saw they also had an old one like 15 year olds and I said, oh, but I want that one. Can I have the old one? I said, yeah, yeah, but that one, that one's 20 pounds. So, and I thought, well, what's this? I thought they were, they were like, you know, screwing me over, right? Like stupid tourists or whatever. So I, I bought the cheap one in the end. I thought, you know, okay, I want the secondhand one, but this is crazy. And I'll, then I'll just buy the cheap one. The cheap one was so bad. I couldn't make a single call with it because the inside was kind of dangling or whatever. It was a total waste. So, the other one was actually worth 20 because that one actually worked. And it was a phone that 10, 15 years ago was worth 500 pounds and now it was 20. So, so then I started thinking, hey, that's interesting. There's these new things that are really low quality that are not worth being repaired anymore because that's a big thing in, in both Nigeria and Kenya where it was the repair uh, practices are, are much more uh, detailed and, and, and intense than they are in, uh, in the UK. But this is now also changing. Because the the you know the five pound uh, phone, even for a repair guy in Nairobi, this is no longer worth it, so to say, uh, uh, to fix it. So the new project now looks at this: the proliferation of these really cheap uh, uh, devices and accessories that are often designed in China and that come directly from China. So there, Europe and North America were cut out of this whole thing. This means that the whole discussion around e-waste will also have to change because now it's all about, oh, uh, uh, European consumers and producers who take responsibility for these old things they sent to sub-Saharan Africa and whatever. Yeah, it still happens. But soon, the majority of stuff comes straight from East Asia. So how are you going to talk about it then, right? Uh, so, so previously, where, where old technology was fixable, these new devices already have an obsolescence built into them? I know some of your work deals with that that notion of planned obsolescence. Could you, you explain that term? Yes. I mean, I think that there is a sense, in, in my perspective, a sense of planned obsolescence in most devices, not just latest cheap. I would even say that with these really cheap technologies, there is no planned obsolescence. They're just made as cheap as you can. There's no In planned obsolescence, there's a sense, okay, I need to make it so it's just good enough for the consumer to be kind of happy with it, but then it breaks and I buy a new one, right? Planned obsolescence means that you don't design the device in order for it to last as long as possible. It means that you design it so that it is really good for a while, and then it breaks at some point. So like a light bulb, essentially. Yeah, the light bulb is light bulb is really the best example, right? The, the, the Phoebus cartel in the, in the 1920s, 30s um, was an agreement between light bulb manufacturers where they agreed a light bulb should not last for more than 1,000 hours. This was in the interest of all of them because they would, if they would last for, for 10,000 hours, nobody would buy light bulbs anymore. So the idea of planned obsolescence is you design something to break after a, a certain amount of time in order to make sure that the consumer keeps buying new items. So this is also done with electronics, right? Yeah, every time the, we have an operating system upgrade, it feels well, like the that's phone's the thing. broken there, there's, there's one thing. There's one thing, which is the, the classic, the, the, the sprinter thing, where there is actually a 
chip inside of most inkjet printers that count the number of pages. When it has expired, it says that the printer is is uh, broken. I know this always sounds like oh, this is conspiracy theory, but really, this is very well documented. And see, you can even you can even find things on the web that's, that that point out which chip it is. And if you solder it out and put a new one in, it works. You can also just wipe the chip with software. That's one thing, which makes sense, right? You got an engineer. It's like oh, you should should design it so the plastic starts to break after like exactly one year. Why don't we just put a chip inside? It's much easier, right? <laughs> the other thing is indeed what you say. It's this kind of software obsolescence where where you're kind of where you're forced to upgrade the operating system of your phone, and then at some point, uh, you know, it becomes too slow, and you <laughs> you get a new one, or you can't even upgrade it anymore. So there are these two things. For me, this is this is something I, I've I've been interested in in relation to the EOS project very much. This idea of what I call digitized planned obsolescence, whereas Planned obsolescence of the analog era is about the material decaying. So if you look at the nylon stockings, another item of planned obsolescence, right? You make them so that after not too long, holes start to come into the nylon stocking and you throw it away. Now for the consumer, this is clear, now I need a new one. But what's key to this is that there is a material experience of the stuff of these stockings, of these nylons, breaking. Now with the printer, this is very different. The printer is broken. It says error and the screen is broken. But in terms of, of your physical experience of the material, it's still a brand new thing, right? The printer is still really in great condition. So what we get there then essentially is if we think about the anthropologist Mary Douglas and her writing about waste is that in this this process that she describes, right, we've got the, useful, the, the usable functioning object that operates. Then we've got the broken object that's kind of a liminal thing right it's a problem because it's 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 still the thing that we know but it doesn't function anymore so it kind of hangs in between and then in the last stage she says it goes to the heaps of common rubbish that's on the dump that it's all mixed and muddled up it's no longer a problem and it's just stuff that we somehow have to deal with but there's something quite key about this in-between stage right because that's where we have to come to terms with what it means that the stuff we live with degrades and becomes something else. Now, with the printer, this stage is cut out. Like, And this also then results in many people hoarding these printers at home. Because the printer, in a way, is still really new, but it doesn't work. So, you know, so, so it's just kind of there new. And at some point, it's gone. There's never been this, this material sense of the thing breaking. So for me, that is consistent also with the ideology of the cloud. I see a kind of web around consumer technologies that promotes the idea that they are immaterial or that they are connected to a kind of, you know, polished world. It's a bit like maybe like kind of, they're the stuff of SimCity, if you like. <laughs> what you're seeing when you when you go out to parts of Africa is very much not a polished world. I mean, there's an environmental effects of these sorts of technologies being shipped off to invisible parts of the world. And we really don't see what happens to these devices afterwards. How is your work in some way trying to reveal again what happens to these devices i know you've you've packed uh, the uh, I, I can't remember the name of it but it's almost like um when they crush these devices down it becomes a uh, it oh, becomes that, a that is a, that's a residue from an electronic waste recycling factory here in the uk that's one of the places we visited as part of the project what i did there is that um from this factory, I took the stuff that remains after they have run through 
the the devices after they've ran them through the whole process of extracting valuable and recyclable materials. After that's done, there's this kind of gray residue that's, that remains, which is toxic. That doesn't contain anything that you can extract. So it is worthless and it's toxic. I took that and I put that into um, to, uh, blister packs for brand new iPad accessories. And these were then exhibited and for sale. That's the only piece I have for which it was crucial that somebody would buy it. Luckily, they were all sold in the end because the idea, of course, was to to present this worthless residue of the electronic device as something that now gains value in this art context. So there are, are these that they are. So basically, you got these gray, these gray blister packs on the wall that had the shape of an iPad mini, which are then for sale. Well, with regards to the environmental effects of this e-waste, I mean, it's being sent to parts of the world. We in the, the West don't necessarily see what happens to our device after we ship it off to have it recycled or disposed of, or we throw it in landfill. And it ends up in these parts of the world and does cause some environmental issues. Yes, it does. I, but I think it's it's important to nuance this standard story a little bit of, okay, we're throwing our computer away and then it goes to a dump in, say, Lagos. That's not exactly what happens. As you probably experience yourself, when you throw away a computer, it usually still works. So what actually happens to the vast majority of the devices now that we, so so to say, throw away and, and that go to uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and actually, to, to be clear, that's mostly corporate computers because the computers we throw away, usually they're still in our homes, right? Once we start dying in 50, 60, 70 years, then we get those. But these computers that go down there, people want them down there because they're using them in schools and companies and whatever. So if you go to the secondhand computer market in in, uh, Lagos, you find the computers from Moody's Moody's Investment Services, for example. I found them there. And you can buy them. People buy them because they're good machines and you can work with them. So that's what happens first. But then once they really break, of course, they don't go back to Europe. So then they end on the dump there. And yes, this is a a vile uh, practice, right? Uh, They end up on a dump and there they are recycled through informal methods, which means that you only take out the stuff that you can monetize and that there are no environmental concerns or, or hardly any in most cases. So in terms of cables, that means you want the copper, the rest is without any value. So you just poke a fire, you throw the cables in, burn the plastic, and there you've got your copper, right? To, to just name one uh, thing that you, that you do there. You, if you want the solder, you just heat up a plate, a metal plate over a fire, you put the circuit board on it, the solder melts, and then you just kind of collect it. Uh, that's it. <laughs> now you, you said some of this stuff doesn't come back to the West, but your work specifically has brought some of these obsolete devices back to Europe. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the interest for me in this project is not so much like what the good work that a lot of NGOs are doing. Let's go there and see how we can improve the way this stuff is recycled. Uh, um, the idea for me is much more to what I would call rematerialize the experience or the perspective on everyday consumer devices here where we're living in in Europe. So what I've done indeed is take some of the electronic waste back and put it in the forefront. One example is my work Recycled Coil, where I took 
um, deflection coils from old televisions that came originally from Europe. I, I took those from Lagos from various places. I brought those back and I asked the body piercer to take part of this copper wire from this coil. So this is an electromagnet right in the back of the TV that guides the electrons. I asked this body piercer to take part of that copper wire and to construct a coil on my abdomen. And then for the duration of this exhibition, this was at Transmundial in 2014, every three seconds for one second, an electric current would run through this coil on my abdomen and thus create a very faint magnetic field. And then for a few hours a day, I would stand next to this magnetometer in the exhibition and you could see my magnetic field switch on and off. So what I tried to do here then is to follow the, following the kind of classic definition, make myself into a cyborg, but then to, to go back to the beginning of the conversation, to subvert this spectacular idea of this cyborg by namely A, instead of implanting the latest new technological part or gadget into my body, um, and then B, do something spectacular, become invincible, live forever, whatever, I actually implanted electronic waste into my body to make an electric or electronic circuit that's arguably the most basic there is, right? You know, a coil to make a magnetic field. And then B, to do something that is absolutely useless in the kind of classic sense of this utilitarian uh, cyborg, like, oh, I'm going to live forever, I'm going to be stronger. No, it just made a magnetic field. It was so faint, you couldn't do anything with it. And then on top of that, the other idea was then instead of attaching the stuff to the extremities, like Robocop has, right? All the gun that guns that come out and all that. With me, it's in the center of the body and a place of vulnerability in the abdomen. Some people said, oh, it looks like you had a cesarean, right? So so I, in various ways, I, I then took this electronic waste and created this dream image of the technologized body, but in a way that engages with the fact that, yeah, there is also the afterlife of stuff, which is not in the realm of the, you know, glorious spectacle of progress and eternal life. And another example of that was, I think it was the piece Return to Sender, is that right? You Back to Sender. Back uh, to Sender. Yeah, I, I wanted to call it Return to Sender, but then Jalili Atiku, the artist with whom I made it, an artist from Lagos, he said, no, no, let's call it Back to Sender, because Back to Sender is a juju, it's, it's a magic ritual that people in Yoruba land uh, uh, know and some practice to send the evil that somebody has sent to you, to send it back to them. And now back to sender has, has caused some controversy in Christian communities where people started uh, making back to sender prayers. And the discussion was then, wait, but that's not really a Christian thing, right? You should turn the other cheek. You shouldn't do back to sender. So this for us, then the, the title back to sender really fit because what we're doing with this piece is a pile of electronic devices and parts, waste, originating from Europe, which we found in Lagos. We put them in a big case and we sent that back to Europe and exhibited it there. And we particularly looked for parts in which you can still see that they come from Europe. And one example is a monitor from, from Moody's Investment uh, Limited here in London. We got um, a Swisscom telephone, uh, part of a computer that has a sticker from the National Health Service on it, that sort of thing. So yeah, that, that's, that piece was, was that, just sending this stuff back. It's kind of a basic idea. And from that, I actually then took this coil, which I used 
to make the recycled coil uh, work on my body. And how are you finding audiences receive this sort of work? I mean, what is the final hope for this sort of project? What do you want to make audiences well, feel? I think what happened with recycled coil is is, is one of the things that I, I want to achieve with this piece. And this was the question, yeah, but yeah, but what's the point? What can it do? What can it do now? What can you do with your magnetic field? Well, nothing, right? And that then is a trigger for this thing. Hey, oh, but that's good. Oh, ah, so this doesn't fit within the idea of uh, of these devices bringing some incredible benefits and at the same time being kind of disconnected from the material world, from the world, in other words, of resources and labor, right? It's, it's a classic form of commodity fetishism in the Marxist sense. These devices, through this focus on the immaterial and the cloud and all that, they become totally disconnected from the social realm of labor, as, as Marx might put it, right? We disconnect it from the fact that there's people dealing with the waste, make, making it, digging out the resources and all this stuff. So what, what I hope from this work is that it that it that that it forms a set of maybe stimuli or small provocations to think about these devices in a way that acknowledges that there is something outside you know outside your app <laughs> there is a realm before and after and ultimately then i hope that this this sort of work fits within a larger subculture of people and ideas that want to go beyond a simplistic idea of eternal growth as the solution for everything. Because this is in the end what it is. And I don't I don't have any illusions that, that now people would come up to my work and say, oh, no, no, looking at it like this, I'm not going to get a new phone anymore. I, I more see it as this kind of art practice and maybe also a lot of work in academia. I more see it as, as an activity to build a community of people who, who are hopefully starting to look at the world in a different way. And that community, that might make, or that can make, I believe, a difference in the broader society. It's not my just my work, right? This goes, goes to Rancière. The, the political um, relevance of a work of art is not the work in, in itself. It's the way that this work might contribute to forming a community or a network of people who, through this, are empowered as a faction within society. Thank you to Danny for sharing how his work reveals the socio-cultural problems associated with e-waste. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.